And it's amazing that this morning that we're going to be talking about people who had made major life changes when they were 20 years old. And I think a lot of you are also in your 20s. And if you're not in your 20s, you probably still feel like you're in your 20s. Or just pretend that you're still in your 20s. That's okay. Um, but when I was in my 20s, uh, around... And interesting, I didn't even think about this when JB asked me to speak on this Sunday. Um, August 22 is a very significant uh, day in my life. And um, years before that time I wrote that song, um, <clears throat> a good friend of mine uh, died in, um, when she was diving at Lynn Canyon. So you know about this Lynn Canyon. There's a, this place that people would like to dive off, and there's been a lot of drowning accidents. Uh, one of my good friends... Uh, passed away when uh, she was 16 years old because of that. And it was shortly, about a month after youth camp that we had gone to, uh, that she passed away. And so on August 22, since that time, I've taken what I call an inventory of my life. I think her death was the first thing that reminded me that I will not live forever. And just because I am looking young, it doesn't mean that God can't take my life just like that. It doesn't mean that the brokenness in the world won't take my life just like that. Tragedies happen, and it doesn't matter what age you are. And so on August 22 of every year, I've kind of changed dates now since I've done that. I take a little inventory of my life and just that kind of clean up of my character, my integrity, the spiritual cleanup is kind of taken its shape and form, but now it's called a spiritual cleanup, an inventory um, of my life. I do it about two times a year. Um, August 22 could be one of those um, light cleaning um, times. But I challenge you to think about this and to do something like this at some point in your year. Interestingly, this morning, I, I need to read you this email. It came up. Uh, I do check my email when I wake up in the morning, okay? Uh, that has not changed. Uh, this smartphone has been attached to me. It's, I sleep with my phone, okay? I know that's a little sad, but I do. Um, and I want to read it to you because it is a, kind of a kickoff to what we are doing today. And it's off a site called uh, The Minimalist. How, how many of you have heard of uh, The Minimalist? They're kind of uh, taking um, the social media now, and they're all about cleaning up and purging life of things. It's not about things that you have that give you uh, value. It's experiences, right? So it's people in your life. It's experiences that give you value. And so this is what they came up to this morning. It was called Existential Clutter. And so I'm going to read a little bit of it. It goes, the guy writes this. <clears throat> I remember feeling a sense of dread whenever I returned home. Two people sharing four bedrooms, three bathrooms, two living rooms, and one oversized basement, all brimming with stuff. The decorations, the trinkets, the collections, the accruements of a supposedly successful life cluttered every corner of my home. I don't know if that sounds like your home. But it certainly didn't feel successful. It felt chaotic and overwhelming. And I felt anxious as a result. I didn't realize it at the, at the time, all those years ago, but my material possessions were just a physical manifestation of my internal life. My external clutter was internal clutter on display. Angst distress, restlessness, 
all visible right there in my home. You see, physical clutter is tantamount to visible, visual noise, and sustained noise is crazy-making. It leads to tension, stress, and despair. Mixed together, my external and internal clutter led ultimately to existential clutter, a crisis of self or spiritual clutter, as we're going to talk about it this morning. And the only way to silence the noise was to let go. In time, I figured out that my full house left little space for solace, but a more empty space is filled with silence. I'm going to stop there. I work in the downtown east side, as uh, JB has mentioned, and a lot of my life is filled with a lot of people's clutter, their things, their angst, their distress. Um, I can go to work and be yelled at and uh, luckily not always be thrown hot coffee in my face. But there are times when it can be um, distressing, to say the least. You have paperwork that's mounting with a lot of stuff to do. And if you're not in that kind of capacity, think about your own jobs. You've got school. Those who are in school, you've got a lot of paperwork. You've got a lot of things. You've got a lot of social media. You've got a lot of people. You've got WhatsApp. You've got, what, texting. You've got all of these different noises that clutter your heart and your space. And so, a couple times a year, I do a sweep of my home. Not my physical home, per se. I do that, too. I like to keep a decluttered home. But more importantly, my spiritual home. This home, Christ's home, I do a cleanup. I learned about this principle of spiritual housekeeping through one of Israel's greatest kings. And he became king at the age of 25. This is King Hezekiah. So we're going to look at King Hezekiah, and I think one of the PowerPoint has a couple of pictures uh, that's going to go uh, put up there. In 2 Chronicles 29 and 2 Kings 18, it starts recording this overwhelming task that Hezekiah has. Now, his father wasn't the greatest of the kings. So what has happened at this time is all around Judah's borders, enemies were kind of like mounting in. And they've captured the northern kingdom. Hezekiah's father has already closed the temple's door, and he's handed off some of the precious furnishings to King Assyria. Now, the nation was demoralized and was degenerate. And it's this time Ahaz, his, king, uh, his father, Hezekiah's father, had already encouraged Baal worship. This is the ancestral worship, or it's like the cultic worship, I would say. It's not even ancestral worship. It's occultic worship, where he even sacrificed his own sons to the god Moloch. And he set up altars on every street. Now, as I'm even saying this, I'm almost thinking, like, it's, it's like the street in Taiwan I used to live at. There's altars on every street corner. Ancestral worship. You see these on all places, right? Hezekiah had different priorities. And check this out. On first, uh, in first, Second Chronicles, we're going to read in a little bit. Um, the first month of his reign, he decided to order the temple to be purged and purified. Purged, like cleaned and purified. Because he wanted to establish the nation's worship to Jehovah. And as I read through, we read through the Second Chronicles, we're going to pick up about five principles that you can apply, especially when you're going into this fasting in, in next week. That's kind of cool. They're going to be doing this. This is a great time. Maybe you already have your own agenda. 
But there is also this agenda where you can actually open up your spiritual homes. And if you do this, maybe we can learn a little bit from Hezekiah on how to do that. And so, with your phones, I brought two. Not your phones, but your Bible. Okay, your Bible or uh, this Bible. Uh, Type in, or flip to, 2 Chronicles 29. I've always wondered if there was a race between people that flip to the Bible and people that type in the passage, who would get there first, right? Um, Of course, the PowerPoint people would win because they'll just click in there. Uh, Second Chronicles 29. We're going to spend most of our day on, uh, or this morning, not day, uh, most of the morning on this passage here. And um, let's go to start from verse 1. In, when Hezekiah was 25 years old, when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years, his mother name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as Father David had done. And here we pick it up, verse 3. In the first month of the first year of his reign. Well, read that again. First month of the first year of his reign. He opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. First month of the first year of his reign. First month. That was priority. So here's first number, first thing that we do. He opened up the doors. If you're taking notes, that's the first principle, opening up the doors. Right? You've got to do that work. Now, when he opened up the doors, the temple doors were facing east. And so when he opened up the doors of the temple, the sunlight would beam through, right? How many of you have, I have said this to myself. I was like, oh, my room's really clean. It's like so dust-free. You open the lights, you open the sunlight, and all of a sudden, dust is everywhere. I have dark furniture in my room, so you can really see the dust, right? But you open up, you show, let the, the brilliance of the sun shine through to your heart. And that's what it takes. And we often gloss over the sin areas of our lives. Like we take a Swiffer cloth. A Swiffer cloth is amazing. How many of you use those, like at home? I think whoever created that deserves to be a billionaire, okay? Because it is one of the greatest creations, the, the Swiffer. If you take the Swiffer and it's just gone, but it doesn't take away the inside, the, the dirt on the inside, the dust that is inside of your house. You can, Swiffer can Swiff away the dust, but it won't get rid of the mold that's there, right? And if anyone has ever lived in Taiwan, how many of you have been in Taiwan or lived in Taiwan? You kind of know what I'm talking about, right? There's mold that can kind of collect because of the humidity. A light swipe may pull away the powdery layer, but there, it doesn't do a thing for the bacterial buildup. Case in point, I'll take myself. Um, I can have uh, a really good attitude with friends. Like, I'm very kind to my friends and family and to churches I go to. I'm beaming with a smile, okay? But oftentimes, what happens when I'm with my family? I can get pretty snappy with them. Even if I'm preparing a sermon talk. For goodness sakes, I'm preparing a talk for the Lord. Can you not keep it down? (laughs) Right? So I can tend to have a snippy, short-tempered attitude. I might not say it in front of them, but I can huff and puff under my breath, right? I can grumble. And then that grumbling, if it doesn't do anything about it, starts to become short-temperedness. The roll of the eyes. Being short-tempered with my dad. 
I don't know, whatever it is. It gets, that's the dust. But during my survey of the year, what is driving that short-temperedness? What is driving that anger? What is the bacterial buildup that's from within? And I need God to shine his light on it in order to reveal it. Not to shame me. I was praying this morning with JB and Char upstairs. It's, I, I want to preface that, that today when we talk about these things is not to shame us of anything. But the reality is that God already knows. He already knows our sins. He knows our, our, our grimy parts of our lives, but he loves us just the same. And part of this is our, my wanting to be able to have that better connection with the Lord. I want to present a cleaner house for the Lord to dwell in. That's really what it's coming from. Olympic gold medalist and missionary Eric Liddell, whose muscular faith was chronicled in the old film Chariots of Fire, um, he had a creed that was published in the book, The Disciples of the Christian Life. And uh, his, he has three questions of himself during his time when he surveyed. And these are the three questions. Um, if you would like a copy of these, we can email it to you. Um, but if you want, if you're quick in your uh, writing or typing, go for it. Here are the three questions that he asks himself. Am I unrestrained in my pleasures? The kind I enjoy without considering the effect they have on my soul. Am I unrestrained in my work, refusing to take reasonable rest and exercise? Am I unrestrained in small self-indulgences, letting myself become slave of habits, however harmless, they may appear to me. These are awesome questions to ask. Awesome question to ask. When God brings these sins into our lives, likewise we can say to him, no matter how big or small they seem to our judgment, but, how, but they're sin. But we come before God and say, against you, Lord, against you, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. God is concerned about these because his blazing holiness cannot approve any sin. He wants to scrutinize even little habits and attitudes that don't honor him. And that's the first thing we do. Open the doors. Right? Say that with me. Open the doors. Yeah. I'm following JV's uh, example, right? Let's pick it up uh, from verse 4. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in a square on the east side and said, Listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, our God, and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. Right off the bat, you see him. He opened the doors, and then what? He brought in the priests and the Levites. Here's point number two. He recruited a team. When you're going to do a spiritual cleanup of your home, and I didn't do this right away when I started all of this. I thought I was like, I'll be a solo, kind of like doing this uh, spiritual inventory on my, on my own. Eh, yeah, you can do it. But folks, 
it is better to do it in a team environment. Look around you. There are people around you that can support you in these things. The king could not clean up the temple alone. He needed to mobilize people who knew just how to put the temple in order. And so likewise, we need a spiritual teamwork for the personal cleansing. I want to bring in a a very practical, practical example. Take your home, for example. If you don't own a home, pretend you own a home, okay? Your parents' home is now your home. You own it, okay? Yay, it's yours. So now you get to renovate this home. And I want to venture to say that many of you here probably don't know how to do, how to build a home, okay? I don't know how to build a home. I might be able to do it out of toothpicks and little popsicle sticks, but when you talk about a real home, I don't know anything about the structure of the home. So if I'm going to come in and say, you know what, I want to knock down this wall because now the trend is to have an open concept for the kitchen and all that, okay? Now, I need someone to come knock down the wall because if you walk, knock down the wrong wall, what's going to happen? Your house might collapse. You're going to have a very open concept home, all right? Um, you want lighting, new lighting. Oh, we got to have to set the mood for when my friends come over. So you want to have better lighting. Do you know how to do electric work? Many of us don't. Maybe you might know how. Many people don't know how to do electric work. And if you don't know how to do electric work, are you going to do electric work? Because we know the dangers of doing a, not doing electric work or doing electric work when we don't know what we're doing, right? Same thing. When it comes to spiritual cleanup, there are some things that might look easy that we think, oh, I'll just YouTube it and learn it from YouTube. (laughs) But there are some things that it's unsafe to do on your own. Or there are some things that is wiser, let's just put it this way, wiser to do with someone that knows what they're doing. And the cost of asking someone to come in, what do you do? You interview, right? What, what, what's their costs? How much are you going to pay? You ask these questions. In the same way, though, when we talk about spiritual cleanup, we have this inventory. And our question that we ask is, who are we going to ask? What's the task? But most importantly, whom do I feel safe to confide in? And this morning, I think it was uh, Jerry that was on video, right? And I copied down the three things that you learned from your disciple, like, class or whatever, okay? To greet one another, uh, to bear with one another. But I love the second one. Remember what the second one was? Do not gossip. That is the killer of any community. Do not gossip. Men, women, husband, wives, I don't care who it is. No one should be gossiping even if you say it in the name of prayer, all right? Oh, let's pray for so-and-so. They're going through this. No, that's, no, okay. Do not gossip. That's the killer of a community. Mentors, small group leaders, pastors, spiritual leaders, uh, they can teach us about God's word, about holiness. Yes, these are people that can be part of your spiritual cleanup team. But you don't have to have these titles, don't have to have a title of a worship leader or a keyboard player or a small group leader in order to be a person that can help someone spiritually clean up. You just need to find someone whose heart follows after God. 
Find someone who can provide that safe environment for you. A safer, that's what we call it, a safer environment. A lot of our clients in the downtown east side, like when they come to us, um, they used to complain like, oh, I thought this was a safe environment. Because some of them try to sneak drugs in to uh, the second floor. Second floor is where we were living. And so they like, they try to sneak in the drugs and, and alcohol onto the floor. And so when others are trying to not use and now being surrounded by this, they start complaining, oh, I thought this was a safe place, right? So I've termed it now, I, I switched my lingo, and I said this is a safer place because it's safer than what you were living outside. So leaders, those of you who are the ones that go to people, you know who you are. You're the go-to person where people uh, seek after to confide in. Create that safer environment for people to confide in. Create that for this church. You want this church to thrive. It needs to thrive on a community that builds each other up, right? Create that safer environment for each other. First one is open, open the doors. Second is recruit a team. Oh, yeah, look at that. Oh, it's right there. Okay, recruit a team. Third is dedicate yourself. Let's look at verse 5. We read verse 5 already, but let's read it again because uh, reading scripture again is kind of fun, right? So let's read uh, Second Chronicles, verse 5. It says, and said... Listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Jump down with me or scroll down to verse 11. My sons, do not be negligent now. For the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. God's work doesn't deserve half-heartedness. Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites to consecrate themselves and give the job top priority. He says in verse 11, if you can, I don't know if you can highlight your phones, okay, or if you highlight your Bible, do not be negligent now is a key phrase. Do not be negligent now. Now, a lot of you were probably not born in the uh, 80s, right? But in the late 80s and 90s, there was this amazing band called Van Halen. How many of you know Van Halen? Yeah? Oh, yeah. Awesome guitars. David Lee Roth. These are like the rockers of like the age. If you want, you can kind of push pause on your phone, and then you can type in David Lee Roth concert images, Okay. Uh, I did that yesterday. I was hoping I could like put in a little PowerPoint on there, but I said, oh, yeah, they can do that search on their Google phone or whatever. David Lee Roth, okay, R-O-T-H, uh, concert images. Um, it is amazing. The, the image that came up was this concert, and he is on a surfboard in the middle of the stage, okay? Um, their, their setup of a stage is amazing. You know how, like, Rogers Arena and BC Stadium can be, right, with all of, like, the hundreds of speakers that they have. And so when David Lee Roth and his band goes into any city, what they have is like a very particular set of setup. Everything, where they should go, how many voltages, power, all of that is all written up. And each band has a rider of 50, his was 50 pages long. 
the, the concert writer. So this is the demands that the band has, everything from where they're going to stay in a hotel to what they're going to eat, all the way to the specifics of the concert, playlist, speaker setup, where they're going to set up, um, everything. 50 pages. And so I, I, I'm glad I'm not the person that was taking the 50 pages, right? But smack in the middle of the 50 page is this one demand that says, in the green room where the band sets up, we want M&Ms, but we don't want the green ones. Okay, so the band's kind of got a bad rap. Like, oh yeah, when you get all rich and like all fame, now you got to just pick out the M&Ms. Like, you know, you might hear little transits of this transients of this story. David Lee Roth is kind of where it kind of came from. Now. Imagine the setup that's kind of there, right? If anything is off, if they did not connect the wires correctly and the things were not set up right, if the surfboard that's supposed to be propelled on the center of the stage is not set up to the exact order, there could be a very big accident. Stage can fall apart, there could be a fire, and there could be a lawsuit. So how is David Lee Roth and his band going to check that this city, before they came in for the dress rehearsal, put everything into specs? Well, the M&Ms. He goes into the green room before they're going to rehearse, and he looks at the table, and if there are M&Ms on the table and the green ones were all picked out, then he knows that this rider was met to the T. He dedicated himself to the task, and kind of with our next point, he was very thorough with his task. Dedicate yourself to the task wholeheartedly. One little green M&M stood for something bigger than that. It could have been an atrocity of an accident that could have happened on stage. Wholehearted. In a recent study, it showed that 18 to 29-year-olds are less committed to the church than just those 10 years older. There's a bad rap with the millennials, kind of, that the generation reeks of half-heartedness when it comes to faith matters. There is progressively this choosing of the faith. We download parts of... (laughs) our faith like we download music, right? But to say that we're not capable of commitment, though, is incorrect. Because I've seen commitment from a generation. I've seen this generation at a hockey game. I've seen this generation at a sale at the mall. I've seen this generation being prepared to buy concert tickets or to line up at Best Buy. There's commitment. We can be very committed to the things we want to commit to. And the Lord right now has says, will you commit to me wholeheartedly? That second part of verse 11, look at that again. If you're looking at David Lee Roth, change over back to the Second Chronicles, okay? Verse 11, second half. The Lord has chosen you 
the Lord has chosen you and chosen me to stand before him and to serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. He has chosen you. So be, dedicate yourself wholeheartedly to the task. The fourth thing, be thorough. Kind of like that M&Ms, right? It's like be thorough with your spiritual cleanup. Fourteen Levites labored 16 days to clean out the trash of Ahaz's degenerate rule. All the idols and the trash went straight to the dump in the Kidron Valley. There was no garage sales back then. All right? Now, my family, my, my family likes to keep trinkets. All right? and, I, and I know that's, it's hard for me to go and throw away my parents' stuff. I can't do that. It wouldn't be right. Um, but we all collect things. Right? And in 2 Kings 18, verse 4, let me just read that out to you if it's not on there. For 2, Kings, 2 Kings 18, verse 4 says, He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. You might have a little image of that there. Nehushtan is the one with a little cross, and it looks like the serpent or the snake that is there. And the image on the top there is the Asherah poles. Um, Asherah was one of the goddesses um, of that region in the Middle, Middle East. This bronze snake right here, uh, this uh, story goes back to Numbers 21. Numbers is an amazing book. If you can get past the first six chapters of all just the numbers, it becomes an amazing narrative of, of Moses' days, right? Um, it, can, it recounts on how God told Moses to put that bronze snake on a pole. kind of looks like the medical symbol. Yeah, it is, right? Okay, because when you put the symbol there, people who uh, looked at, with faith to the pole were healed. That was what's happening, all right? So it was almost like this, I, I hate to say it, but it's like magical, right? It's, it's, but it's faith. It's God's supernatural healing that came when they looked at that pole. Hence today, the medical symbol, right? Here is what the problem was. The Hebrews started to hang this bronze snake, and they eventually worshipped it. So in Hezekiah's cleanup, there was no sacred cows, and there was no sacred snakes. Anything that wasn't in God's original plan got tossed. This could have been such a relic. And at that time, it was a 700-year-old museum piece of relic from their wilderness wanderings. But it was wrongly worshipped. And that was expendable. This is where Hezekiah's cleanup gets personal. This is where it gets personal. The first part, you know, open up the doors. Ah, oh, it's easy. Let's just do it. This recruit a team. Yeah, it's easy. I look to my left and to my right. High five, next person. You're on my team. Okay. Three, dedicate yourself. Sure. Yeah, I could do this for like uh, 48, 72 hours. Not a problem. But when God starts bringing up these like poles and says, what is your Nehushtans in your life? What are those good things that I had did in your life? It's not necessarily just sin stuff. 
It's the good things that worked before, but you've kept up there, and now you keep on worshiping. This is where it hurts. This is where it comes to me and say, oh, I can't live in my glory days, right? It would be wrong of me to have that song, God is so real, written in a plaque, put in my music room, and I go, oh, yeah, those are my days. Like, no. But if God says, I want you to take that song, and I want you to smash it and never, do, and never play it again, whoo, that's going to be hard. But he's got certain hushtons in your life, the good things that was meant to be there, but now, hmm, it's wrongly worshipped. We've got those. Maybe it's in the form of a person. Someone that you love so much. Or friends. That God says, no, these are your Nehushtans. You need, to, you need to clean this one up. You've relied on this person too much. You need to rely on me more. That's hard. These are idols. They were good before, but became idols. If they are not surrendered and cleared out, I'm just going to say it straight up, it's dangerous to your soul and those around you. If you don't surrender these Nahashtans in your life, it's only going to be a matter of time when it will become a destructive force in your public ministry. The Nahashtans in my life, one that I always have to battle with and I have to keep surrendering is my work ethics. I have very strong work ethics and um, really, like, I, I focus right on the job. When I'm there, I'm there. Um, I give everything to my ministry and it's like ministry is all of life. But God, this year, through a friend, through a co-worker, actually my, my superior, um, she pointed that out and it was one of the harshest things that I had ever had to hear. You work too hard. <laughs> and it was a black mark on my work, like on my performance appraisal. It wasn't something they applauded. It was something they say, no, you cannot work this hard. The longevity of it is not good. 20 years of my life in ministry, no one ever said that to me. They applauded hard work, right? They applauded the fervor that you give to God's work. But here was someone that stood on the other side and say, no, that is possibly your Nahashtin. Actually, she didn't say that. But as I was prepping for this talk, and even now as I'm th thinking through it, that is probably my Nahashtin. Thing that has worked for me in the past, but maybe it's not working for me anymore and should not be working for me anymore. So in my cleanup, this is one of those things that the Lord will have to help me work through and have a different plan. The last thing, we're back to 2 Chronicles 29.30. This is the fun one. 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30. Let's read it together. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph this year. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshipped. So once they cleared out this temple of the vile things that were in it, 
They consecrated the temple furniture, the utensils that King Ahaz had removed. This last chapter, we only read like verse 30, but it really goes back to like the middle part of it. The rest of the whole chapter was about a celebration. A celebration. The people sang with gladness. They bowed their heads in worship. That is how we end a spiritual cleanup. I didn't do that in my early days, but I do it now. You recruit a team and you celebrate with your team. Folks, it's a lot like when you move into a new home. What do you do? You get your home prepped up and then you have a housewarming. You invite your friends, you get all these nice presents, right? No. You invite your friends to share that you finally got a house in Vancouver. And you're now 40 years in the mortgage. Welcome to the club, right? But you celebrate together. I was just at a housewarming one week ago. The place was amazing. Not huge, but it was cool. And I was happy for them because they got a house. (laughs) My friends got a house. They did it on their own. That's hard. It's very hard to do that. But the same token, when we do a spiritual cleanup of our house, celebrate. This is tough work. Now, you don't, you maybe next time you, you invite a few friends over and you have a dinner, it's like, this is to clearing my nashtan. And you'll all get it. And you'll know this was hard work that this person had to do. But celebrate together, right? That's what a small group can do, you know? You got 200 bucks, you can do whatever you want with that one, right? Celebrate clearing the nashtans in your life, yeah. Um, celebrate, continually offering that sacrifice of praise. It's a major clean-out spiritual work. But it's worth celebrating and consecrating and rededicating that life in praise and worship to the Lord again. First one, open the doors. Second, recruit a team. Three, dedicate yourselves. Four, be thorough. And five, celebrate and consecrate. You know, Scripture commends the life of Hezekiah as one who held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. Cluttering and decluttering, it's hard. And especially if you've never done it before, it is really tough. But it gets a little easier each time. Each time I do my personal inventory, um, I've done it for 20 years now. Um, it takes a different shape and form, and it's, it's kind of neat started when, like I said, when I was 20 years old. And it was tough in the first bit, but it gets a little easier. You can get more creative. You go on a mountaintop. You'll go everywhere. Like, it's, it's your thing to do. Have a team. Sometimes I don't. I'll be honest. Sometimes I don't have a team. Um, but usually somebody knows that I'm going to be doing something like this, and they consecrate me in prayer. And I'm getting better at celebrating in the aftermath of it. Years ago, about eight years now, I wrote a journal entry, and um, <clears throat> I want to kind of close up with this journal entry. And um, it's something kind of uh, that hopes will bookend this talk here. And I wrote this, and I hope you can identify with it. It's a little dated, you know, eight years ago. Um, and I wrote about following and how Hezekiah ceaselessly followed um, the Lord. And I wrote, this is something that's becoming more foreign 
with each generation. Society has deemed us the I generation. The growing trends of iPods, iPhones, iMacs is turning us into a generation that picks and chooses parts of Christianity like I download music. Anything and everything is at my fingertips and my mind is increasingly cluttered with anything and everything. I hold fast, steadfast to my phone. Do I hold fast to the Lord? I seemed, it seems like I never cease to follow trends, but do I follow God? When I push that stop button on my iPhone to listen to that and stop the music, and push the pause button on life. As I sit in solitude with the Lord, my soul wants something similar said of me as of Hezekiah, that I want to be remembered as someone that held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. When I'm in my grave, I will not have my phone, but I will have the Lord with me. God has called us the house, his house, the praise of his glorious race, his grace. Let's continue to seek his grace, his mercy, as we dump out the spiritual clutter that we've hoarded in our lives for too long. I'll pass the time.